This is the Software and Technology Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. The more diversity of thought and the more diversity of background of the people working at tech companies, the better. So you have the data scientists, many of them might come from a very technical background. And then you've got the business side, and these are two separate worlds, and they have a very difficult time communicating and understanding what their priorities are. The blockchain idea was around 91. So about the time that the Terminator 2 movie was coming out, the same idea of in the digital world, we need verifiable documents. Everything's downloaded. Let's boot up the system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the MarketScale Software and Technology Podcast Show. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and boy, oh boy, this episode has me excited, really because all of our guests are so down-to-earth, passionate, and focused on their industries, and we get a lot of varied insight on a lot of different developments in the software and technology world, so I hope y'all are ready for some great content. Again, very varied. Ooh, very varied. That's that's not fun to say and probably not fun to listen to, right? All right, so a big look at the how. That's kind of where we're focusing our show today. We're always looking for great tutorial content, and I know y'all are always looking for great tutorial content, but there's nothing quite so B2B as the tutorial content we're going to be giving to y'all. So let's pose some questions, and by the end of the show, I think you'll have all the answers. So first question is, how can you best stay ahead of regulations and compliance in the cannabis production industry? Hmm, tough question, right? Washington-based Sugarleaf sheds some light on the unique backend for weed growers and why they need software to handle the whole process seed to sale. I'm really excited for y'all to hear that piece just because of the unique nature of the cannabis production industry and really the solutions that they need compared to other production management. Another question, how can banks and other financial service companies use data and technology to their advantage to offer customers new innovative services and products? Cesare Fracassi, associate professor at the McCombs School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin, gives us his take peering into the current state of fintech. And last question, How do you bring AI to your business in an ethical manner? This is part three of a series we did earlier in October with Ben Taylor, co-founder and chief AI officer for Ziff AI. We finally caught him on for the finale with some back and forth. I mean, hey, it's a busy time of year, but I'm glad we got him behind the mic because this part of the conversation is so important. The ethics of AI are so crucial, especially in the corporate world. Listen to Ben break down what biases creep their way into your algorithms and how to avoid them. I promise this episode is going to be one of our most educational, so take this actionable insight and apply it to your business, whether you're in finance, cannabis production, or really any vertical. These are your software and technology podcast minutes brought to you by MarketScale. Amazon, the world's largest online retailer based in Seattle, announced that it is entering the computer chip market. The company has spent the past several years building a new chip for use inside its millions of servers in its worldwide data centers. 
Amazon's new chip is running only a small fraction of the software across the company's online business, but that is expected to change. While Amazon is not planning to sell this chip directly to customers, the decision is likely to have a major impact on chip makers such as Intel. In recent years, Google has designed specialized chips for artificial intelligence technology. Facebook and Microsoft, which like most internet companies are major buyers of chips from Intel, have also indicated they are working on similar AI chips. Amazon's executives believe that its chip, which was designed to be more energy efficient, will help reduce the cost of electrical power in its data centers. Shareholders at Dell Technologies voted to return the company to the public markets. Under terms of the deal, Dell will buy out shareholders of the stock that tracks Dell's stake in software maker VMware for $23.9 billion. The Texas-based computer company said it will be listed on the New York Stock Exchange as soon as December 28th, under the ticker Dell. Michael Dell, the chief executive officer of the company, said in a statement that this move will simplify Dell Technologies' capital structure and align the interests of the company's investors. St. Louis-based Emerson, a global technology and engineering company for the industrial, commercial, and residential markets, has acquired iSolutions Incorporated iSolutions is a Canadian-based consulting group with expertise designing and implementing data management solutions. According to the company, the acquisition will accelerate delivery of Emerson's new digital transformation roadmap by adding proven skill sets in information technology and operational technology and application knowledge to help integrate data from the plant floor to business systems. As part of Emerson, iSolutions will help organizations deploy Emerson's IoT platform called the Plant Web Digital Ecosystem. I'm Maggie Shin, and these have been your Market Scale Software and Technology Minutes. For our first piece, I came across an article that immediately grabbed me. And really, how could you blame me when cannabis production is in the title? Very eye-grabbing stuff. The title of the piece was Weed Advisors Software to Help LPs Manage Assets and Ensure Compliance. And this industry fascinates me so much, really because it's still in its legal infancy. So I think companies are still finding ways to maximize their production and adjust to shifting regulations, which poses a continuous and serious challenge. The article focused on the software Weed Advisor, but speaks to the interesting nature of production management software in the cannabis industry in general, really. Their needs are just so radically different. To break down the article and get his experience with the software that powers efficient cannabis production, we spoke with Travis Royce. He's part of Washington-based company Sugarleaf. He's their general manager. And Sugarleaf is an indoor tier three producer and processor of cannabis. They direct the entire production process from seed to sale, and they sell directly to retailers. So the software that they need is deep and diverse. Let's hear from the expert on innovations in cannabis production software. All right, Travis, great to have you on the podcast looking into how software is helping simplify meeting 
cannabis regulation as well as just simplifying the entire production process. Great to have you on. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on, Daniel. Absolutely. Uh, I know when I found this article, I, I knew I had to get someone that was deep in the industry and had a lot of great insight. Tell our listeners a little bit about your experience in the cannabis industry. How long have you been in production um, and sort of how have you seen the industry evolve over the, over the last several years? Yeah, uh, so I I, uh, I got into the industry myself in 2015. Uh, Sugarleaf has been around since 2014, back in the medical days. Uh, you know, it's amazing, uh, Daniel, going through the article that, that you alluded to, uh, talking about uh, you know just just how different programs help out different folks. This industry itself is kind of weird uh, in the fact that, you know, honestly, four or five years ago, everybody who was doing what I'm doing now was a criminal. Right. Right. Uh, and, and so now it's all legal, but, but what you had is you had two different groups of people that were coming in and opening up shops. You had the people that were the diehard cannabis connoisseurs, you know, the guys that were growing in their basement and, and, uh, you know, kind of slinging on the side. And then you had the businessmen on the other side that came in who didn't know anything about cannabis, but they saw an opportunity to make money. Uh, the problem is, is you, you can't just be straight on one side with the growing aspect or you can't just be straight business. You kind of have to have a little bit of both. So you're seeing people that have issues, uh, you know, let's say growers, they don't know how to run a business. They know how to put out a killer product, but they don't know how to maximize, you know, their earning potential. And then you have the business side who don't understand the growing side and they don't understand that you're dealing with a, you know, a living plant, right? You know right. I mean? And these things are finicky. It's not, it's not the old days where you throw some seeds in the ground and hope something good comes up. I mean, right now, uh, you know, think of it like wine. You know, everybody has their favorite bottle of wine, and you make you may like that three hundred dollar bottle of Joseph Phelps, or you may like that ten dollar bottle of uh, Dark Horse. So it's really starting to uh, cater to individual needs. You know, uh, when you walk into a store, say, you'll have a bud tender that'll ask, "What are you going to do today?" And then they'll try to find a strain or or a specific phenotype to match you up with exactly what you're trying to do to get you the exact feelings. So it's kind of cool. You know, it used to be back in the day, you would just get it, you know, you would get a, a sack from somebody. You didn't know what it was. You would just, all right, cool. I, I got some, some marijuana. I'm good to go for the weekend. Now you're looking for specific things, you know, phenotypes or, or genetics. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's cool to see that the industry is evolving to that, you know, that really personalized point where you are creating products that, are appealing to that individual customer. And to do that, obviously, you need to have a great plan of action and you need to make sure that the production is on point, but also that you're meeting government regulations. And this article listed it out pretty well. Um, you know, if you fail to meet proper regulations, the consequences could be pretty severe, anywhere from forced shutdown if government inspectors find operations in noncompliance to um, fines for failing monthly inspections or costs of asset failure related shutdown of production processes so it's it's pretty hefty and having some kind of technology backend to simplify all this uh, feels pretty essential so tell me a little bit about what kind of backend software you use um, in your production facility, and I know it's not exactly Weed Advisor, but it is a similar product. And tell me a bit about really what does it bring to the table that maybe other production management softwares don't? How does it have to be unique for the cannabis production industry? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, here here we use uh, Growflow. 
uh, in the past, I've used BioTrack. And what's nice about those, uh, especially when it gets to, you know, regulations and rules, uh, particularly the state of Washington, you know, we, we're getting constant rule changes. You know, they're always, they're, it's, it's an evolving industry. And with that, the laws are kind of evolving as well. Uh, and a lot of times it's, you don't know a rule passed, you know, I mean, they'll send out the emails and everything like that. But, uh, you know, it, it's nice to have that software that protects you from yourself, if you will. Uh, you know, whether it's something as simple as sending out samples illegally or what do you do with your waste or, you know, how do you report your taxes and, and stuff like that. And that goes back to kind of what I was saying before, where if you don't have that technology, you don't have that software. A lot of times, you know, I know ignorance is no excuse, but a lot of times you, you don't know that you're, you're breaking a law or breaking a rule. Uh, even as something as simple as uh, like pesticides or, or anything that you're putting on the plants. You know, uh, here in Washington, again, we have just a constant changing list of what you can and can't use. So, you know, I mean, something like that software that'll stop you from hurting yourself is always a bonus because, I mean, honestly, if you ever go to a government website, it's like reading stereo instructions. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you, you have no idea what you're reading. The wording and the stuff doesn't make any sense, you know, to the average guy, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but, but let's face it, the average guy is, is who's building this industry right now, you know. Uh, you don't billionaires, you notice they don't tend to get into it. It's more like a, if they do, it's just like a side investment to see what happens mm -hmm. with their money. So it's, it's Joe Schmo out there getting investors, you know, I mean, he's basically mortgaging everything in his life to try to make a successful business. And the last thing you need is, is one bonehead mistake that, that you're ignorant of shutting you down. And that's where, you know, the software like weed advisor or, or GrowFlow or BioTrack or, or whatever, whatever may be the case really helps you out. Uh, now, with that being said, you, you actually have to get in there and di dive into it. it. It's not just plug and play sort of thing. Sure. But at the same time, uh, w one thing a lot of these people like Weed Advisor and doing is, uh, for lack of a better term, that they're really dumbing it down for guys like me, you know, so you can get in there and it makes all it all makes sense. Walk me through sort of what one of those platforms looks like and how they make it uh, simple to use and accessible, uh, because like you said, I think ignorance of regulations or ignorance of, you know, how one simple mistake could lead to a total shutdown of your facility, it doesn't come from a place of negligence necessarily. Like you said, it's people that are just trying to enter this business. They don't really know it inside and out. And so those little mistakes could be really detrimental and having something simple is going to make it so much easier. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, basically the software that we use particularly has everything set up into rooms, right? Because uh, you have different phases. You have your, your clones, you have your pre-veg, you have your veg, you have your, your bloom. And then after that, you move it over to the drying room and then you have it into processing where you're actually making products out of it. And, uh, you know, specifically GrowFlow is really great because it's just, it's just click a button. You know, you don't have to go and search. You don't have to know certain t terminology or anything right. like that. You know, you just, I wonder what's in the bedroom. You click on the bedroom and, and there's, you know, however many plants you may have ready to go up into bloom. And it also lets you know your time frames and stuff. So, you know, every grower I know keeps just tons and tons and tons of notes, uh, which is great. They absolutely need to. But let's say those notes get misplaced or a guy like me walks in and he wants to find out what's going on with our plants. I, I literally open up the program and take a look and go, okay, well, these have been in here for a week longer. Why? And then, you know, you, what's cool too is they also can kind of give you trends and uh, past history. So I can get in there and go, let's say we have a specific strain strawberry cough. 
And typically most strains are nine weeks or 60 days uh, in, in flower. Uh, I can get in there and go, well, this one keeps taking 10 weeks. Well, now I know that that strain needs 10 weeks constantly. Right. And that software will, will keep track of that. Now, with that being said, there's waste. Uh, you know, waste is one of the biggest issues and there's waste throughout the whole process. You're always, you know, you're plucking dead leaves off. Uh, you're getting rid of dead plants. You know, after you harvest, uh, you have all the, the stems and, and everything left over. Uh, and in Washington, you have to do a certain thing with that. You have to weigh it all up. You have to let it sit in quarantine for 72 hours before you can destroy it. And that kind of software, it keeps all that stuff up to the minute. I mean, you know, if we put it in at 452 on Tuesday, we know we have to wait till 452 on, on Thursday before we can actually get rid of it. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas before, you're just kind of going off memory or or some handwritten notes, which, you know, that doesn't really work out for most people. <laughs> right. You know, so. Right. Uh, and it also helps us keep track of all of our, uh, our you know, our, our retail stores or, or partners, as we like to call them. Uh, we can see what their trends are as far as ordering, whether it be strains or sizes or phenotypes, you know. And then we can also, okay, you know, these guys ordered this much last week. They go through about this much every week. I can go ahead and give them a call and say, hey, your numbers should be pretty low right now. Do you want to reorder? So it helps up with the clients because, you know, in Washington, there's over 1,300 growers, producer processors, but there's only over 300 stores. So we're fighting for shelf space on all these people's store. And we don't ever want them to run out of any of our stuff because, you know, that's bad for business. And, and they have so much going on that they may overlook, you know, that they're putting in their orders for the week. And did I forget any farms? No, you know, uh, where they now they have the software on their side, too, which can kind of tie into ours. Well, I can just like immediately get into their system and go, oh, geez, you're short on this. Let, let's get you loaded back up, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like because the industry is still relatively small, it, it makes you as the producer have to wear more hats. You know, right. the the retailers themselves, like you said, aren't totally um well, okay, yeah, they are in command of their stores, but they may miss a thing here or there. And I right. think in a more established industry, you're not really having producers reach out or be integrated with an individual retailer's inventory and be like, hey, you know, need to fill up on this. Typically, they have that down pat. But I right. feel like with this industry, things are a little more tight-knit, a little more communal. And I think in that sense, having this sort of full a solution software that not only helps with the production side of things, but the distribution and supplies business solutions, consumer insights, manage assets. It's a definitely a different kind of management software than I think you'd see in other industries. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think you kind of hit on it is this industry is completely different than every other industry. Uh, you know, I, I obviously I wasn't around during prohibition days with, with, right. with but uh, I would assume it's something like the same where you know, everyone's doing it illegally. And because of that, there's no regulations, there's no rules. So you honestly have no idea what you're putting into your body. But because that's your only option, you just kind of go with it. Now that there are rules and regulations and stuff like that, obviously, we got a lot of stuff we got to go to. But the people that actually work in this industry, they come here because they want to, you know, I mean, it'd be I myself, I, I had a very successful uh, uh, career in radio. And I just got too old for it. And I, you know, I mean, I just I couldn't live that lifestyle anymore. And I was making pretty good money. And then I came up here and got in the industry at the very bottom, you know, and worked my way up. Right. And, uh, you know, as I'm doing that, I, I have that business sense. I have the marketing sense. That's my background. But most of the people in this industry are just like, hey, I get to work with pot right on, you know, uh, where I don't know if you get that at like 
a car factory or anything like that. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just people going in looking for jobs or looking for the money aspect of it. We're here. People are coming more for the experience. So with that, uh, you have a lot less, uh, a lot less knowledge of how to actually operate on a day to day. And we're, we're a high production facility. You know I mean? We're, we're, we're cranking stuff out. It's, it's the novelty part of it is no longer prevalent. You know, I mean, now it's like, we're, we're actually producing a commodity. We need to have so much to make sure we, we hit a profit every month. And, uh, it's, it's, we're slowly starting to get into, this is a real industry versus all right, I work with pot, but because of that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I, a lot of lacks, I guess, on stuff. People are still trying to figure out methods to madness. I mean, you walk into any grow, and there's a million ways to grow cannabis, and yeah. none of them are wrong. It's just you have to stick with your way. And and when you get back to the software, that really helps you just make sure that you're maintaining and that you're you're doing everything properly. You're not skipping any steps. Uh, you know, or or maybe something as simple as yields. Like let's say you have a strain that you're growing that you really really love and it sells well. But at the end of the day, it doesn't yield enough for you to justify growing it. Uh, and then so you'll have to have a hard decision. Either I get rid of that strain or I only put it out in special occasions. And where the software comes in is it can help you decide, you know what, if I put this many plants in at this time, that'll give me enough product to last me however long. Right. Uh, where before you're just kind of going off a gut feeling, you know, I really like this, you know, and that's we're not selling to ourselves. We're selling to an end consumer. And the end consumer will dictate how the market goes and, and what you grow and what you don't. But at the same time, it has to be profitable for you. So Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's definitely a juggling act, but it it's pretty cool that we've got these solutions already in place and evolving as the industry evolves. And always great to get insight from someone that is deep in the industry and gets to work with software like this every day. So thanks again, Travis, for coming on the podcast and walking us through this back end of the cannabis production industry. All right, Daniel, I appreciate it, buddy. There is more customer data available than ever before to online retailers and tech companies. But the question is, how banks and other financial service companies can use that data and technology to their advantage to offer customers new innovative services and products? MarketScale host Maggie Shin got us an update on current trends in the fintech or financial technology market, including automated financial advising and marketplace lending. She spoke with Cesare Fracassi, associate professor at the Macomb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. He explores everything from machine learning to blockchain technology and what he expects will still change in the financial services sector. Take it away, Maggie. Hello, and welcome to this software podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Maggie Shin. Software and technology in the banking and financial services industry has seen tremendous change. With such a large amount of data, there are endless possibilities for innovation. Recent ones include robot advising and marketplace lending. Fintech, or financial technology experts, are seeing a lot of innovation in this arena and expect even more change for the year ahead. I got to sit down with Cesare Fracassi. He's an associate professor in the Department of Finance at the Macomb School of Business at the University of Texas, Austin. We discussed the current state of the tech market in banking, along with what trends, innovations, and changes he's seeing and expects to see. Cesare, welcome to the podcast. 
Yeah, it's my pleasure. So the first thing I'd like to talk to you about today is the current state of the fintech market. Uh, absolutely. In the U.S., fintech, uh, we, we see a large trend in uh, shifting from startups to uh, large uh, incumbents. The, the, there are uh, more and more large banks entering the fintech area, and, and they see fewer investment in startups in fintech. For example, if you see the IPO market, uh, the IPO market this year actually has been very, very hot with a lot of, uh, I think, more than 200 uh, companies uh, entering uh, uh, the, the public market. Uh, but we didn't see a lot of uh, fintech companies. Um, if you look at VC investments on startups, has been uh, plateauing. But what we see instead, we see a lot more investment uh, in, uh, in technology by, by large uh, financial service pro- um, companies. For example, uh, one area is uh, robo-advising. has been uh, started by, by startups like uh, uh, Betterment. Uh, but uh, over the last uh, couple of years, we've seen uh, a lot of uh, large companies like Vanguard, uh, Charles Schwab, uh, really entering very heavily on, in, in the robo-advising space. For example, also uh, marketplace lending. So the marketplace lending is the B2P lending. This marketplace lending space has been dominated by companies like Lending Club, uh, SoFi, uh, OnDeck. These are all companies that started as a startups. But lately we've seen trends where the large banks are also entering uh, the space. Uh, we see Goldman Sachs offering uh, marketplace lending, uh, JP Morgan starting to offer one. And so... Overall, there is a trend in, uh, that I see in large banks responding to the threats of, of, uh, of these fintech startups and uh, also using technology to prove the product services for, uh, for consumers. How are any other new software or technologies changing the banking industry in your experience? What transformations have you seen so far? So people have been talking about machine learning for, for a while now. And, and I want to give some perspective uh, about machine learning in the financial sector. If you look at how machine learning has been used in tech, uh, uh, we have seen a, an incredible transformation and incredible advancement in how tech company can handle vast amount, terabyte and terabyte of data to analyze images, text, voice, and that allows company to provide incredible services that, that just simply five to ten years ago were not even uh, we were not even being able to to to, to forecast. So the, the reason is uh, uh, is because uh, not only we made advancement in the way we process the data, but the amount of data that uh, that we currently have in terms of digital analyzable data is incredible. It's it's, it's like it's is order of magnitude larger than we had simply four or five years ago. And so that allows uh, Alexa uh, or Google Home to understand uh, us and to also respond in, in the best way possible. Now, this is in the tech side. Now, have we seen such incredible transformation in the financial sector? And, and, and the answer is not as much, and for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is uh, is regulation. Um, 
you know, companies when they, for example, they provide lending, they um, they still don't know exactly whether they are allowed to use specific machine learning tools or not, because the Fair Lending Act and, and other regulation, uh, you know, um, uh, force uh, uh, credit lenders to provide a reason why uh, you know somebody might be denied a loan. And so, uh, but, but they don't exactly tell you exactly whether specific uh, analytical tools are uh, appropriate or not. And so there is this gray area and, and banks specifically sometimes are reluctant to use new tools because not because they're not gonna work, but because they're afraid that uh, this might actually violate some of the regulations. The second part is that uh, uh, we don't have uh, in, fun in the financial sector as much data as uh, we have in other industries. For example, we have millions, if not billions, of photos and audio that allows us to actually analyze this data to have a better predictive model. Now, we don't have billions of loans, and so our capacity to predict who is a good borrower versus a bad, versus a bad borrower is not as uh, good as uh, in uh, other analytical models. So people have been uh, trying to integrate uh, social media data, uh, IoT, Internet of Things devices, to basically expand the set of data that is currently available. But these uh, new signals are not very informative. So there is not a very strong relationship between your social media activity and whether you are a good or bad borrower. There may be some, but the, the, the signal to noise ratio is very low. And so yes, it's true you might expand the data available, but you also are going to expand the noise that you have in your data. That's interesting. So what do you do about that? <laughs> how can how how can the financial sector um, increase the data that they have and get more and and kind of cut out the noise? Absolutely. So um, let me give you uh, a couple of latest trends in uh, in uh, that I actually see that I actually are going to actually change uh, uh, the banking lending uh, uh, industry. One is uh, we see non-traditional lenders offering uh, loans to specific customers. Uh, let me give two examples. One is Amazon. So we see Amazon starting to provide loans to the merchants that sells on the Amazon website. And the reason why Amazon provides loans to these merchants is because Amazon has an immense amount of data about these customers. The second example is uh, online or, uh, or mobile processing payments like Square or Stripe. So every time you go to a food truck and you buy something, they take your, your credit card and they swipe it on their mobile. Huh? So that is a, a payment processing system uh, that uses your, your, your cell phone, basically, your smartphone. And so this, this company that provides the services now are providing loans to the food truck or to these online websites. And, and, and the reason why they are better able to provide these loans is uh, because they, they, they have data about these, uh, these, uh, these people, these, these companies. Data that are so uh, high frequency 
um, that uh, that bank, regular banks don't have. So, for example, um, Stripe and Square are providing uh, uh, loans uh, to this food truck and these online vendors. And uh, in order to repay the loans, they basically take a cut of the revenue you have. So when the payment goes through their network, they basically retain a portion of the of the revenue to pay back the loan. And so I see I see two main innovation in this that banks uh, are actually going to struggle to compete with. A is the amount of data that these uh, tech company have, and and B the convenience and the ability for them to actually get their money back. Uh, because they are, they basically have a trade relationship with them, and therefore they can easily, you know, you know, retain a part of the revenue stream to repay back the loan. And so these two innovations allow allow this tech company to provide better loans than than the bank. I wonder for the future where you see the industry going for 2019 and beyond. This is my prediction, my own personal predictions. Um, I think we're going to see more and more tech companies entering the financial service industry. And, uh, and the reason is, as I said, because of access to client and, uh, and because the amount of data that they are collecting. So now we're seeing uh, Amazon, Square, even Uber, I didn't mention that, even Uber is providing loans to uh, drivers if they want to buy a car. And so, so I think in the next uh, several years, uh, we, we see we will see an expansion of financial service products offered by tech companies. Um, how can banks respond to this? It's hard. Uh, if I if I am an Uber driver uh, and I have to convey to my bank that I am a very good driver and uh, I am getting a lot of uh, uh, rides and so on. It's going to be hard for me to, to provide that type of data to my uh, credit union or to my local bank, while uh, Uber can immediately compare you with other millions of other drivers to see whether you're really that good or not. The, 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 the advantage the bank have is that they've been lending for many, many, many years, so uh, they they basically know the regular the, the, the regulatory environment better. But that's something that the tech company can easily uh, learn. So I, my prediction is that banks are going to have to compete more and more with the tech companies. What about innovations in the fintech industry? What do you expect there for the future? Yeah, so, so one is uh, uh, something that people have been talking about for the last uh, five years now, which is blockchain technology. Uh, we have seen... Uh, uh, <coughs> We see an explosion of interest in the in the in the in the sector, but also in the last uh, ten months, uh, you know, there is also a sense of disillusionment about uh, about some of the applications uh, of blockchain technology. Um, I believe that uh, uh, the technology is still a very um, immature, not immature, but let's see, in the uh, at the beginning. Uh, and I think the problem is that people got totally overexcited about uh, about some of the potential technology, without realizing that it's going to take another five to ten years before we actually see uh, uh, we see products being offered using blockchain technology. Then that's one. Uh, we also see an, a trend where 
new technologies are actually pushing old technologies to innovate. So people have been thinking about using blockchain technology for uh, using for, for uh, cross-country payments. Well, what, what happened is that now Swift, which is the main uh, uh, company that actually organization that does cross-border payments, is actually putting get, getting some pressure to to innovate. So the, the, the Swift model that people, the banks have been using for transferring money from one country to another is like 30-year-old, 40-year-old. And the reason why they never innovated is because there was never a competitive pressure to make the service better. And now, so we, the same thing with Venmo. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Venmo, uh, if, you, if you do use it. Well, Venmo is a way for, comp for people to, to exchange uh, money with each other digitally or through your mobile phone and, uh, and and so you see banks responded to that now banks are providing also this this person-to-person uh, -person payment uh, only mostly because uh, because of competition and so one of the things I see is that uh, the, 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 the incumbent are responding to the competitive pressure of fintech companies uh, and they're also providing uh, uh, new services that uh, were not provided in the past. That's our time. Thank you, Professor, for coming on today. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's software podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Maggie Shin. See you next time. Back in October, we did two episodes of a three-part series with Ben Taylor. He's the co-founder and chief AI officer for Ziff AI. If you don't know Ziff, they got some social media traction after their amazing predictions of The Bachelor and Bachelorette's winners using their AI platform. It was a crazy look into how predictable the show is, but really what was more interesting was how it exposed some trends and what the contestants and America find most beautiful. I'm doing air quotes here. The theme of our series though, between Ben and I, was looking at how to effectively bring AI to your business, looking at it from an executive and data scientist perspective. For our last episode, Ben and I dig into the scary stuff the ethics behind your AI project, what levels of bias make their way into AI solutions like hiring platforms, and how to avoid these pitfalls as a data scientist and business owner team. It's a great episode, let's jump in. Our previous podcasts were all about bringing AI to your business. So we focused the first two episodes on basically why is AI useful for a business and when is it useful, right? Kind of digging past some of the pet projects and looking at tangible use cases. Then we also talked about how you convince the business owners, the executives to actually take that leap of faith and bring AI into their daily operations. So now we're sort of wrapping things up and assuming, all right, we found a good project, we got the executives on board, the, uh, the AI is now integrated into daily operations, and now we're looking at the ethics 
behind bringing AI to your business? You know, where are there issues? Um, how can you responsibly use AI in your business to actually, you know, improve operations and not maybe expose some unintentional bias? And how do you keep your head wrapped around what kind of power that kind of technology really has. So let's start by just getting your take on how are business owners looking at ethics in AI? Is that a, a pretty tangible part of the conversation when they implement a project or is that something that often gets left behind? I would say it often it often gets left behind and people are surprised by it. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners um, heard about the Amazon resume model that they had to get rid of because it had a gender bias. And that stuff is kind of, that just happens. Um, it's not, and the interesting thing about that is the AI is learning, um, it's learning something too well. So it's learning something, it's getting really good accuracies, it's training on past performance, but it is, um, it's incorporating something that you did not anticipate. So in that case, gender, and we see this with race and, and with other things. So uh, you so I think this opens up the discussion about understanding why the AI is predicting something and protecting yourself against potential bias or unethical hooks that could happen from the AI, AI perspective. Playing off of that Amazon example, I feel like often when AI is biased, it's not because the AI is some demon machine. It's really because it's exposing some kind of bias that was already in the process you're trying to have it do. So in Amazon's case, it was that it was using resumes over the last 10 years as sort of an example of who to hire. And though maybe that was showcasing great things to look for in their experience and in their education, it didn't take into account that they had hired over 50%, sometimes closer to 75% male versus female roles. So that was immediately exposed that the resume application was pulling mostly men. And that's something that maybe AI stepping in actually sheds a little light on something that you should fix. But if, if you're not approaching it from that angle of, oh, okay, this is exposing something we need to fix, and instead just implementing it and then not really looking at looking at it that critically, it could uh, actually hurt your business. So the, the interesting thing about AI is it will, it, you're right, it'll never create bias out of nothing. It's not going to spontaneously create this bias or this evil. It will come from human data. And that's but the, the interesting thing about that, it's also not a hopeless situation either. So when I worked for HireVue, we were actually able to take data sets that were biased and we were able to train them uh, where we were able to remove the bias. Um, so the humans provided a biased data set towards a particular role. And using some pretty advanced methods, we were able to undo the human bias and still teach the AI to predict um, what types of individuals should be hired. Should you really be sourcing on the individual, right? I mean, if, if you're powering an AI solution that is meant to pull almost every facet about this person and use that for tangible data and to make business decisions, you know, when is that information too much? When do you pull too much information and then you're actually compromising the security of this person? Yeah, so that's um, so coming from the data science perspective, the 
kind of the calloused analytical responses, there's no such thing as too much because data scientists go on what we call a feature hunt. So they want more. They have this insatiable appetite to get more features. But there are some really weird things that you're going to start stumbling across where we, we've we already done analysis with our company where we've shown that you can predict uh, DNA markers in the face. And in the U.S., that would be illegal to use something like that uh, for hiring input or decisions. Um, and you can predict different health markers, so risk of heart attack, uh, in, extreme, in extreme use cases, risk of diabetes potentially or liver function or kidney function could be present in a face. And as that information becomes available, just because you can use it, um, that that's kind of the new ethical debate that will come up. Just because you can, should you be allowed to use that if it improves your lead generation model? Right. Well, I mean, yeah, if you started using information like that, I mean, that's pretty... <laughs> pretty illegal. You can't, you know, not hire someone because they may be at greater risk of a stroke or something, right? I mean, that's uh, that's actually illegal. And so I guess it's, it's important to make sure that your AI isn't accidentally sourcing information like that and using it uh, to make its decision on who to hire or who to advertise to, right? So I guess that falls down to whose responsibility is it to look for these things? Because... You've got the data scientists, you've got the executives, and obviously the data scientists are the ones that know the software, they know the code. I guess they would be more adept to know like what they're looking for, but does the responsibility fall on the executive to make sure the data scientists are looking for that? I guess in your experience, who typically takes responsibility for that and you know stays active on uh, ensuring that doesn't happen? Yeah, so it probably would be at the executive level or at least someone outside of the data science group. Um, one quick one quick thought before we really dive into that. Um, the concept of ethics, I think a lot of times we think of that as being a universal truth, and that's actually not the case. So in the U.S., it is illegal to use lie detection to influence employment selection, of course, Unless, of course, you're applying to the CIA or, or some government uh, function. But for me to to put you through a lie detection test for a sales position, I'm not allowed to do that legally in the U.S. But in Latin America, that is just fine. There's nothing illegal about doing that. And then if you look in China, some of the things that they're doing with their social, um, their social score using AI. So ethics will owe it will kind of be on a case by case country by country here in the U S we might have an opinion about how the rest of the world should play when it comes to this, but it is, you are going to see some interesting behavior down at the country level where they, they'll have different ethical understandings or laws than we have here. What are some gray areas that, you know, we haven't really solidified on a legal perspective that is really going to be left up to ethical data scientists and ethical business owners to not go down that route? You know, where where is it still kind of unsure of can we use data for this information or not? Yeah, so I think maybe the gray areas would be personality assessment or assignment that that's already happening today where people don't know that their personality is being assessed, but that information is going to be used for lead generation or for some downstream decision linked to that individual. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of tricky because that, 
if I know your personality, that doesn't seem necessarily that evil or upsetting. But if I know your, you know, your risk of kidney disease, do I tell you? So if I find out something that could impact your life, am I now responsible to let you know that you didn't you didn't get the job, but you need to go see the nephrologist? And something that's uh, kind of strange that's happening here with some of these more advanced AI methods, you actually don't know what they're doing. Um, so one example that we have, we kind of did this for a fun marketing use case. We built a deep net that predicted the outcome of ABC's The Bachelor, Bachelorette. So for yeah, so for some listeners that aren't familiar with the show, it's a rea- reality TV show where you have a single man or woman, and then you've got thirty men or women competing for them uh, to be to date them and to marry them. And looking at someone's face, we saw we could get surprisingly good accuracy just from a face on how well you would do on the show. And we actually predicted the winner for season twenty-two, and we'll get ready to do that again for season twenty-three coming up. And the interesting thing about that is you have this big model with tens of millions of parameters that's predicting something from a face. And if, and you can start to unpack that. So you can show that there are beauty biases. So the more attractive you are, the better you do. The younger you appear, the better you do. And the more white you are, the better you do. Uh, so there is a racial bias to the show. And, and none of that is surprising. Everyone, people already knew that. But the other thing that does surprise people you can actually uncover genetic biases. So with um, so a lot of times with whites, you think that we kind of fall into the same category. Um, so I, I'm white myself, um, but we see there are um, there are genetic differences. So if you are perceived to be of white with Swedish ancestry, you will do better than someone who is white with uh, German or Austrian ancestry. And the AI can pick up on stuff like that. So kind of the, the end of the story is you really have no idea what the AI learned with that particular application. So even I, I consider ourselves AI experts because it's what we we live and breathe. But even with the tools we have access to, we can only unpack so much of the story. We can only peel back so much of the onion. And in the end, there's a lot the AI could have learned where we have no accountability. We have no way to kind of expose that story and that's where things get scary yeah so what would you say bottom line for business owners who are adopting ai what should they do to sort of avoid these issues um because i mean you said it yourself it it may be hard to predict what the ai is predicting so how should business owners approach this because i mean we've already talked about there are tangible benefits to bringing ai to your company um especially if it's with a data scientist that knows what they're doing but also you know there is a an authentic conversation about what big picture goal are you trying to accomplish here there's intentionality behind the implementation so you know i don't think people want to stray away from ai because of these fears but it's good to know them and it's good to try to avoid them, right? So what would you say that bottom line is for business owners? Um, what should they be really looking to avoid and how can they do it best? Yeah, so I think the common theme there, so this would have saved Amazon, that you have to keep a domain expert in the loop. So in, in the Amazon case, the domain expert would have been an IO psychologist. So that's someone who their full-time job is to look at job-related competencies, and they're aware of ethics and legal defensibility. 
and they are the experts when it comes to selection. So they were not involved with that resume model, but if they had been, I think that might not have happened. But regardless, if you're doing talent selection, just having the domain expert in the loop and in the discovery process with the AI, they can, they can, the AI can offer up topics or feature insights, but you need a domain expert to approve them, review them, and have an opinion where a data science only team is a very dangerous thing to have because they are going to focus on what we call alpha predictability, and they are not going to necessarily dig in and review the topics or the features that are being discovered or leveraged, where a domain expert will always have an opinion around that. Right. So per usual, it just comes down to having a diverse and knowledgeable team to deploy your AI. That that, that just seems like the answer to, to basically all the concerns. Yeah, and that's that's the right approach. And there's, there's always going to be... Um, kind of this give and take between predictive power and explainability. We're making a lot of progress generally with unpacking and explaining what these neural networks are doing and why they're getting this predictive insight, but it's not it's not a perfect process yet. So it's kind of a developing way to unpack the AI. But yeah, definitely keeping the domain expert in the loop is a, is a safer bet as you find value in an organization. All right. Well, Ben, I think that concludes our little three-part series. Um, you know, I will definitely be linking to the previous two episodes because there was definitely a gap there between those and this one. But I'm looking forward to bringing you back on the podcast because I always enjoy our conversations. You've always got some great insight to give. So thanks so much for doing this. And it was great chatting with you again. Yeah. Great chatting with you as well. All right, everyone. Unfortunately, that does it for today's episode of the Market Scale Software and Technology Podcast. I really, really loved our features today. I think the people we spoke to were so focused on what they love in the industry, and I, I just love that variety. I mean, <laughs> the fact that we're bouncing from cannabis production to how to implement AI into your business is just pretty incredible, and it just goes to show how diverse the needs for emerging technology are. So I hope you enjoyed all these conversations. Make sure you head to our webpage if you're not listening to this on our website to read up a little more on each of the pieces and gain some supplementary info, especially some of the articles that we mentioned earlier in the piece. And if you feel like you've got a story to tell, you're someone who either is innovating in the space or knows someone who's innovating in the space, feel free to reach out. We always want to hear from people in the industry. Shoot me an email at daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Again, that's daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Look forward to hearing from y'all. Again, thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard and want to hear previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure to leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.